0: It was only a short time after my arrival here at Bethel that I had a uh, leader and a deacon in our church that basically begged me to speak on the subject of wine drinking. And through conversations that he had had with people, he had discerned that there was a great deal of confusion in the church on the subject. I told him that I didn't think that we were ready for that. But I made a mental note, and I thought to myself, someday I will speak on that. And that day has now arrived. Uh, And partly, it's arrived because I think that we're ready for it. And what I mean by that is that I think that we have established ourselves as a church that wants to be biblical, biblical. We want to be biblical, not just when it's easy. We want to be biblical, period. And this is not an easy subject. But I agree with the church leader that it's something that needs to be addressed. And for the following reasons. Number one, is that it is clearly an area of confusion amongst Christians. I get asked about this all the time. I remember meeting a guy uh, at, at church. It was his very first time ever at church, and he, uh, not at our church, and he pulled me aside, and he, and he said, I got to talk to you. Fine. He says, what do you think about wine drinking? Not like, what's your view on the nature of Christ? How was somebody saved? The return of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, da 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 on we could go. The number one issue to him was, what's your view on wine drinking? Are we all of the same mind on this subject? I doubt it here today. We have people from different backgrounds. We have people from different perspectives. We have people with different presuppositions, and we all bring those into this uh, topic. And there are people that are here that are wondering why we're talking about it at all. It's a no-brainer. Of course it's okay to drink alcohol. Their parents told them that and modeled it. A spiritual mentor told them that. Why are we talking about it? Then there are also others who wonder why we're talking about this at all. Of course, it's not right to drink alcohol. Their parents told them that, or the Christian leader told them that, or somebody else told them that, or they had a very bad experience from it, and of course, it's wrong. And then we have all the masses in between kind of wondering what to think. They don't know what to think and what's going on, and I'm not sure, and they say this and you say that, and I don't know. So what are we supposed to think, and what does the Bible have to say on this subject? You know, I've been in the church all my life, 30-some years now. It's going to be 30-some plus one here pretty quick. And I don't think I've ever heard a message on it. I could be wrong, but I don't think that I've ever heard a message on this. I was talking to somebody else this week, and uh, their comment was, it was never taught uh, to me, it was just something that everybody knew that you didn't do. We didn't know why, but we knew that you didn't do it. And it seems that people have strong matters, or opinions on this matter, uh, but that these probably have not been carefully and biblically thought through. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that that is the case. And that they have become convictions by virtue of some experience or of somebody that told them what was right and wrong in this matter. And I personally think that confusion is always dangerous. I mean, think of our young people. We have many young people. Many of them are here in this service. And they grow up in the church, and because it's sort of a hot potato, nobody wants to talk about it, so they never get taught on the subject. And then they go to IU or Purdue, and suddenly they're uh, awash in this uh, and how am I, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think about this? I guess, is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. My friends don't think, seem to think it is, and so, and away they go. We've never taught them. We do what we think, and we think what we're taught. How many times have I said that? And whose responsibility is it to teach the children? I would say primarily parents, but I also believe that the church has a role to play in that. Now that said, We must be very sensitive today to people for whom this subject only means pain. We have people in our church that have grown up with an alcoholic parent. Their lives have been ravaged by the effects of alcohol. And there is only pain with this. And I think that we need to be sensitive to that, and I hope to be, uh, in my teaching on the subject. And by the way, my family has not escaped this pain. My grandfather was an alcoholic, and I never knew him, but I can tell you that there is a lingering effect uh, of sin in a, in a family when that has been modeled in the life of the parent. So, the first reason is that I think there's clear confusion on this. Lots of different opinions, nobody's real sure what to, what to think. Secondly, is that this really is going to be a test of our commitment to the Scriptures. It really is. And the reason for that is that these kinds of issues, and this certainly is one of them, are really harbingers of deeper questions. Namely, is the Bible our real authority uh, for faith and practice? And of course we say that, and we sing it, we sang at the beginning of this service, we believe in the Holy Bible, and on it goes, and of course we believe in the Bible. But then an issue like this comes up, and the question is, is the Bible going to be our authority, or is it going to be, Uh, my experience, good or bad, what I've heard, what I think, or the Bible. Immaturity always wants easy answers. There's probably many of you that just like for me to get up and say, uh, yes or no, you're dismissed. Now you would like that for a lot of reasons, I think, like a short sermon being one of them. But maturity strives to understand things in the gray. And some of you, I think, are going to be challenged in this to think through it with maturity. Because this is a complex uh, issue, and the complexity will test our commitment to the Scriptures as our final authority for faith and practice. Now, some of you are here maybe listening to see if I agree with you. Well, I wonder if Steve agrees with my opinion on this. And you have not come to this as a learner today. You've not come uh, saying, I want to grow, I want to change. And I think that's a dangerous thing. In fact, that may, may be more dangerous than alcohol itself, to think that you've arrived. I would hope that all of us are here saying, I want to learn what the Bible has to say. Fresh again today. And I should probably ask this question as well. Do you want a pastor that just tells you, a pastor that just tells you, what you want to hear, because this would be something that'd be sort of easy on this subject, just to sort of say this or that, and everyone's like, "Okay, well, that's that's what Baptists believe, you know," and away we go. Or do you want to have a pastor that tells you the truth? And I certainly hope that you want to have a pastor who tells you the truth, because that's the kind of pastor that I want to be—not what does tradition say, but what does the Scriptures say? Scripture alone is our authority, and uh, so when I'm dead. which could come this week, possibly, I suppose, or after the service. Uh, And I'm laying in the casket at the front. I want you to say, Pastor Steve, old Pastor Steve, he told us the truth. Now, the fact that we're addressing this uh, is probably going to be viewed by some as there goes Bethel trying to be radical again. I don't want to be radical I want to be biblical, okay? Now, unfortunately, we live in a day where being biblical will get you in trouble a little bit with the world, but a lot with other Christians, which is a sad thing. You know, we already have Christians that take shots at our church. I don't know if you knew this or not, but it does happen. I heard a good one recently that our teenagers don't attend services here, that they get to sit in the youth room and just sort of chill out. Would all the teenagers please stand? Okay, we put that to rest. Thank you. You may sit down. I also heard that uh, our youth pastor hands out wine coolers at parties. And best yet, that the youth pastor at Bethel wears dreadlocks. I have honestly heard that. Don, would you please stand? So, we've put some of those things to rest here this morning already. But the fact that we are actually talking about this subject will only sort of stoke the fires, I think, of people that maybe would look at us this way. And I've got to ask you a question: who's the radical or the liberal? The person who twists the scriptures or ignores the tough passages, or the person who honestly comes to the Word of God to find out what it says? Who's the liberal? Last time I checked, a fundamentalist was somebody who was committed to the inerrancy of God's Word. All of it, not just the ones that we like. Now, as I begin, I want you to know that my personal practice in this area is that I'm an abstainer. You don't need to sort of wonder where I'm coming from in this, or I'm trying to sort of, that's where I'm coming from. That's my personal practice. You don't need to wonder about that. In fact, I've never drank alcohol. That may seem weird to you, but um, I never have. I grew up in, in, in a Christian home, and Uh, I just, it certainly was possible and available, but I just have not done that. Uh, And I also am not looking for controversy. I got enough of that in my life. I don't need anything else. This is not a major issue to me. Uh, This is not a big deal. If I never speak on it again, that's fine with me. If after this is done, I never talk to anybody about it again, that's fine with me. This is not a big deal to me. But it is an area of confusion. So I just want to bring God's, the light of God's word to light upon it and help us understand and grapple with it and then move on. This is a three-part series. There is this morning, tonight, and next Sunday morning. And each one of the messages is as important as all the other. So, uh, you know, if you don't come tonight, don't come to me later and say, well, what about this? I'll say, you didn't come. You know, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. It's a three-part series. Every one of them is important. And I don't have time this morning to say everything, because you don't give me enough time to say everything on a Sunday morning. So please wait till you've heard everything. Are you ready? That was a long intro, but are you ready? Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, then, and let's find out what God's Word has to say. Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine. Which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 is going to be our focus, but we need to see that the context here is from the apostle to the church at Ephesus on how to live wisely. That's his concern. And we must live wisely uh, precisely because folly is so tempting, because the days are evil, because we must seek what the Lord's will is. And then now to verse 18. He says, do not get drunk on wine. There you are. It's a command. It's in the imperative. There's no wiggle room here. It's clearly uh, stated for us. Do not get drunk. Now, to get drunk means to be intoxicated. It means to be controlled by uh, the alcohol. And we are never to be controlled by wine. And there is a little question on this, but it needs to be said, and so I want to show you a few other passages that say this. I have a slide. Next slide, if you would. The Bible describes drunkenness as an act of the sinful flesh. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sobering truth, no pun intended, but it's true. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. The lifestyle of the pagans and the ungodly is is marked by drunkenness. It is always wrong. Ephesians 5.18, always has been, always will be for everybody. Drunkenness is a sin. And then 1 Corinthians 5 says that Christians are not to fellowship with a brother, or maybe we would say a professing brother, who is a drunkard. This is something that you say, I'm not going to fellowship with you. You kick in the Matthew 18 process on them and you seek to turn them. I remember seeing a beer advertisement on a billboard. It said this. Drink all you can now because there is no beer in heaven. And what I can say to you is that if alcohol is a big deal in your life, you're not going to heaven. If alcohol is a big deal in your life, you are not going to heaven. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, does that mean that drunkenness is the unpardonable sin or that Christ's blood can't cover it? No, I'm not saying that at all. Of course it can be forgiven. In fact, in that passage, he says, and that's what some of you were. But the point is, is that if this is a mark of your life, if you are being controlled by alcohol and not by the Holy Spirit, it is an indication that you have not tasted of the grace of God, that your life is not oriented towards God's will, and that you're living for the sinful flesh, and people like that will not be in heaven. Now, I don't want to spend any more time on this because I don't think any of you would argue. There's nobody here, you know, I think drunkenness is okay. You know, they're not going to say that. uh, And you're not going to say that. And this is not where the confusion is. The question lies as to whether or not a Christian is morally free to consume wine or not. So let's dive into that now. And I want to share a few key words with you about wine. But did you know that wine is referred to all over in the Bible? Over 235 times the word is used, and uh, there are many other references and inferences to it. If you read through the Bible, which I would encourage you to, by the way, we have the little insert. Did you see that? That's something that we've put put together. I'm doing it again this year. I would encourage you to, if you're looking for something to do, read through the Bible in uh, 2003. But as you do, highlight every time you see wine or beer or drunkenness. It's all over in the Bible. Wine in biblical times was made through a very simple process. They would harvest the grapes. They would put the grapes into a wine press. Sometimes that would come through stomping. They would stomp on the wines, or sometimes in a, they had a, of a stone that would would uh, uh, squirt is the only word that comes to mind, but would separate the juice from the grape. And I, in fact, I've seen these in Capernaum and it would just kind of go down through a trough, and it would be gathered together and then placed into a wineskin to to ferment. And that's why Jesus, for example, uses the parable of the old, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because uh, the uh, carbon dioxide that that comes from that process would burst the old wineskins. You've got to put new wine in new wineskins. He's talking about the fermentation process in that parable. And that's how they did it. So... uh, It's basically the same principle that's used today, although today's processes can produce a much higher alcohol content than they could have in biblical times. But the point is, is that it still was alcoholic. It was the kind of drink that made you drunk. Wine was a very common commodity in biblical times. They would, for example, mix wine with water. Uh, to purify the water and to keep it safe to drink. They would use wine medicinally. You might remember Paul says to Timothy, drink a little uh, wine with your water for the sake of your stomach. Okay? We understand that. People generally don't have a problem with uh, you know, with that kind of alcohol. If you use NyQuil, then you're Timothy. Okay? That's what's going on. I didn't mean that to be funny, but I, maybe it sounded that way. Uh, now, wine drinking, though, generally, for wine drinking's sake, was reserved for special occasions. Let me give you some examples that we have in the Bible. Uh, when the patriarchal blessing was passed, I believe that's from Isaac to Esau, that they made wine for the occasion. They were going to celebrate. There is uh, times of joy and feasting. Job one, Esther one. In fact, I don't even get into this, but I'll just mention to you that if you look at some of the millennial promises in the Old Testament prophets describing what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes, many times it uses languages that there will be wine that will be flowing. It'll be a a time of of plenty. It'll be a time of celebration and feasting. I'm not even going to get into that in this, this series, but it's there. We have the coronation of King David. They made wine for the occasion. We have weddings, John chapter 2, which we'll get into in a moment. So, it's all over in the Bible, is the point that I'm making to you. I want to give you some of the key words. And I'm not trying to make you into a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar, but this will come to play a little bit later. The Hebrew and Greek word, the Hebrew word yayen and the Greek word oinos are the most common words for wine in the scriptures. That they're all over the place. It's just kind of a generic word for wine. We also have tirosh and glucose. This would be the new wine, that sort of fresh wine. Uh, Maybe grape juice, you might say, but I'm going to get to that point in a moment. Glucose, for example, in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, the disciples go out, they begin preaching, they're preaching in other languages, and the the men of the city look at them and say, they've been drinking too much glucose. And then shakar, which is the word for strong drink. Now, the reason I share this is that a common teaching out there is that they try to distinguish in these words between wine that was fermented and wine that was not. And they say, well, these words mean wine that was fermented and these words mean wine that was not fermented. The problem with that is that it does not bear up under scrutiny. And I want to show you. And there are more examples in this next slide, if you would. For example, Noah gets drunk in Genesis 9 on Yah-Yen. is said in Hosea 4 to take away understanding and is linked together, I believe, with shakar, strong drink in that passage. Grape juice doesn't take away. I've drank a lot of grape juice in my life and it's never taken away understanding. The disciples, I mentioned that one already. And then the wedding guests that drank too much oinos in John chapter 2. The point that I'm making is that wine in the Bible was alcoholic. It was alcoholic, and while not hard liquor, as we would know it, because they didn't have the ability to do that, it was the kind of drink that got you drunk. And the reason this is important is that inevitably, when you talk with people, the, 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 the teaching comes up that the wine of the Bible was actually non-alcoholic grape juice. And in some cases, it might have been. But I have never known anyone to get drunk on grape juice, And if the warnings are against getting drunk all over in the Bible, then those are silly if the people are simply drinking Welch's grape juice. You see the point? It sort of makes all that, well, then why would they talk about it if it's not alcoholic? It was alcoholic. And to say anything less, I think, is to twist what the Word of God is saying. Now, the word oinos is used... Uh, 235, I should say the word wine is used, 235 times in the scriptures, and we're going to look at all of them this morning. Just good. You're all going, just yes or no, please. <laughs> we want to get out of here. No, we're not going to talk about it. We never could. And so I just want to give you the general teaching of the Bible on this matter. And here's point number one. The the emphasis of the scriptures in on this subject are clearly on the warnings or are on warnings concerning alcohol's effects and abuse and i think that this needs to be heard loud and clear if you were to look up every one of these passages the vast majority of them are warnings and are negative as to what alcohol does and the effects of alcohol in someone's life The first glimpse that we have of drinking in the Bible is Noah, who got drunk, and bad things came from it. And from that point on, again and again and again in the Bible, it is trouble, it is pain, it is sorrow that is emphasized in the Bible. In fact, just Proverbs as an example. Let me just give you a few from Proverbs. Wine is a mocker, and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. What happens to drunkards and gluttons? They become poor. And then the passage that Don read, I want to read it again. Describing. what, What does alcohol do? Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, When it goes down smoothly, in the end it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? You talk to people who have been big time into the drinking and partying, and they will say that is exactly their experience. They wake up in the morning, they got bruises, They don't. where did that come from? They can't remember what happened, and in worst case scenarios, they become consumed in their life with getting another drink. And they'll do anything to get another drink. And they'll leave their families to get another drink, and they'll leave their jobs to get another drink, they'll spend all their money doing that. They'll, they'll, everything is lost for the sake of the bottle. And the Bible warns about that effect, and what comes from it? And what is the, what is the uh, going on? What is the result? Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine. What is it, how does it conclude? Look at your Bibles. Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Or some of your Bibles say excess. The idea there is sin of every kind. When you get drunk, there are all kinds of troubles coming in your life. Did you read the Post-Tribune this morning? Did you see? Apparently, last night there was some guy in Laporte who was totally drunk and was running around the streets of Laporte completely naked last night. It was in today's paper. I read it. I thought, wow, that's kind of fitting here. I mean, he ran all around the streets. They chased him all through the town completely naked. Do you think he has regrets this morning? <laughs> I'd have to think so. But the frat party and the singles bar and the rave dance and, and all that goes in that atmosphere is allowing, the alcohol is lessening the inhibitions to sin that would otherwise be there and need to be there, and allowing for a lifestyle that is sinful. And those that allow themselves to be led astray by it, the Bible says, are fools. They are fools, and they suffer the consequences of their own Folly. You know there was a family that I uh, ministered to in Indiana, in Indianapolis, and I knew them quite well. In fact, I remember my grandmother passed away, and uh, they let me borrow their SUV to drive up to the UP to to go to the funeral. You know, so it was one of those kind of families—very generous, very giving, very godly folks. But it was one of those families where it just didn't click with the next generation, and their kids did not—they didn't get it. And their one son. Went to Ball State University, and one night after a, a party, was walking back to his dorm room, and he was walking along the river there, and there was a, just kind of an embankment, somewhat steep embankment, down to the river, and in his drunken stupor, he stumbled, fell onto the embankment, rolled down the embankment, into the river, and drowned. What's going on there? Wine. Wine. Is a mocker. It's a mocker. I'd encourage you to take a good look as you leave today, but the snow has ruined my illustration. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but uh, this is something that occurred when I was in Romania. And these grooves that you see, this is, there's Broadway, the, the, the truck there, that's Broadway. And then, of course, you see the sign, and there's deep grooves. You know what happened? One night, this is in, in late October, this guy's driving down Broadway early in the morning, drunk as a skunk, and just lost control. I mean, there's nothing going on on the road at that time of night, and there's nothing there, as you know. Lost control, went down into the ditch, and and you see the groove. Like, there's our sign. How we, we're a little sad. We would, we'd, we'd like a new sign. <laughs> but he missed it, okay? <laughs> and... And you look at that line and you wonder, how did he miss it? I don't know, because he went and he just missed the sign. He went into the other side and into the field uh, south, upside down. And the last thing we heard is that he was brain dead in a coma at the hospital. Right here, right out here in front of our property. What's going on? Wine is a mocker, and those that are led astray are fools. Domestic, you can talk to uh, the police officers. We have many of them in our church about what their experience is with the effects of alcohol. Every single week, they're going to houses where because of alcohol's effect, there's domestic violence that's going on. They're arriving on the scenes of accidents where drunk drivers have ravaged families' lives and their own lives and ripped families apart. What's going on all over in our culture every single day with alcohol? Wine is a mocker. It is a mocker. And if you want to know the emphasis of the Bible in this regard, it is warning, warning, warning over and over again. And if all you get from these series of messages is that you decide, you know what, I don't think I'm going to drink alcohol, I doubt very much that you'll get to heaven and have regrets. Like, I wish I would have drank more alcohol when I was on earth. It's not going to happen. And that's the warning. It is a warning, and they are very strong. And it has to be said. That is the emphasis. Now, at the same time, we have to have intellectual and interpretive integrity as we come to the Word of God and to acknowledge point number two, which is that the Bible stops short of calling it a universal sin. You know, there is no prohibitional verse. There's no, nowhere that you can turn where it says... Drinking is wrong always for everybody. It's not there. Now, there are times that it clearly is sin. For example, if your conscience doesn't allow you to drink and you drink, it is sin for you. Or if you cause a brother to stumble, it is sin without question. And we'll get into that more tonight. But there is no verse that says that wine drinking is wrong for everyone. And yet, with over 200 references, there was every opportunity for God to say that through the Holy Spirit, through one of his writers. Oh, and by the way, nobody should drink alcohol. They never do it. Not once. In fact, there are verses that do quite the opposite that I'd like to share with you. First example. That God is attributed as the source for wine and is praised for its gladdening effect. Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Says this: He makes the grass to grow for the cattle. By the way, this was a song. Okay, this is the Psalter. This is a song, a worship song. He makes the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine, there's that word, yayin, that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. This is a worship song. I mean, imagine you came in here some some Sunday morning. Great is the Lord, he is... Uh, Holy and just, and he's made wine for us. You know, something like that. I mean, you'd all think, is this a drinking song? What's going on? And yet that's right there in the Bible. He's praised, he's worshipped for wine and the gladdening effect that it has. They're thankful for it. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine, Ya yen uh, with a joyful heart. There's no prohibitional verse, but then you've got a verse like this that sort of commands it. What do we do with that? Point number two, did you know that fermented drink was a prescribed part of Old Testament worship? Let me give you. There's some examples you can look up later. I'm going to give you the Deuteronomy 14. Here's the context. He, uh, uh, Deuteronomy is God is telling them how they should handle bringing their tithes and offerings to the temple. And if they live so far away, I mean, imagine you, you're going to give a tenth of your harvest or something, and you live way on the other side. How are you going to bring all that there? He says, "Okay, convert it to silver, and then come to the temple." And here's where we pick up verse 26. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, yayen, or other fermented drink. There's the stronger word, shikar. Or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. That's sort of a tough one, isn't it? Because if wine drinking is always sin, if it's in a moral category and God is prescribing it, actually, as a part of worship, is God asking them to do something that's immoral. Why would he do that if it was a sin for everybody at all times? Now, those are the easy ones. This is sort of the harder one. I'll just admit this to you. And this really is kind of a, uh, this was the, sort of the one that defined this for me. And that is the whole matter of Jesus and fermented drink. And I'd like you to turn to John chapter 2 with me. John 2. And let's just let the Bible speak. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother and his disciples, uh, I skipped something. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Oinos is the word there. They have no more wine. Uh, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Meaning that he wasn't planning on beginning his public ministry yet. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. This is a big, this is a big thing. I mean, imagine a 30-gallon a uh, aquarium, for example. Uh, holds quite a bit. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have, been, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. now. I don't have time for major exposition on this, but what is plain here is that Jesus is responding to a need. This is the request of his mother. So he's being a good son here. His mom wants him to take care of the problem. And in his response, he supernaturally makes... Around 150 gallons of f- fermented wine. Now, the way that we know, uh, this, I, was, I always think of a conversation I had with somebody uh, years ago uh, on this, in which they argued with great emotion that the wine that Jesus made was actually grape juice. That is impossible in the context, and the reason that we know it's impossible is notice that the MC of the, what the MC of the banquet says. He says normally they bring out the choice wines first. Now, what would the choice wines have been? The choice wines would have been those that had matured fully. Not the cheaper new stuff, but the, you know, the, the old wine. We'll serve no wine till it's time, or something like that fits in there somehow. But he says, but you've saved the best till last. Meaning that this was the choice stuff. Not the grape juice. This was the uh, fermented wine. Now, the point here is that we can say is that what Jesus did at Cana was that he made fermented wine and he did so for the enjoyment of the guests. Further, Jesus, and this is maybe a little sort of the kicker, Jesus drank wine publicly and admitted to it publicly. And I want to show you where. It's Luke chapter 7. I have it here. You can look it up if you, on your own if you would like. Jesus is... Uh, talking with the Pharisees, which always was a contentious time. And the Pharisee, he brings up the subject of John the Baptist. And he says in verse 33, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, oinos, and you say, I believe it's oinos there, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, meaning himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, John the Baptist, you might recall, the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and says, your wife's going to have birth, and this child is going to be special. He is going to be a Nazarene from birth. He is never going to drink fermented wine. That's what the angel said. And sure enough, John the Baptist was an abstainer. He never drank alcoholic drink uh, all of his life, and he lived sort of this weird lifestyle. He didn't eat, he ate grasshoppers. He didn't eat, he wasn't... Uh, you know, sort of a big eater. I guess he ate uh, sort of weird stuff, and it bothered the Pharisees. And the Pharisees looked at him and said, "You know, you're a guy that has a demon. That guy's that guy's demon possessed. Look how weird he is, not drinking wine and all that." And then along comes the Son of Man now, and he is not an abstainer from normal food, and he is not an abstainer from uh, from wine. That's what he says. I I've come eating and drinking. And you say that I am a glutton and a a drunkard. The Pharisees were spreading the rumor. Hey, Jesus, you know, he drinks wine, but we hear he drinks too much. That Jesus of Nazareth, he's a drunkard. Now, was Jesus a drunkard? Absolutely not. Drunkenness clearly is always wrong, always has been, always will be. Did he drink wine? Yes, he did. So the implication here, then, is clear. That here we have Jesus, who is the pure Lamb of God, the sinless sacrifice. We hold to that truth. We have to believe that truth. The Bible teaches it, and it's the only way that the justice of God could be satisfied. The holiness of God, Him dying on the cross, He was the sinless Son of God. And yet, at the same time, we look in His life, and we find that He apparently drank uh, wine. So either He was the sinless sacrifice, or... Drinking wine isn't, big word capital right here, isn't necessarily wrong at all times for all people. Now a few additional points that supplement this. 1 Corinthians 11. The church at Corinth had a big problem. People were coming to the Lord's Supper and some of them were getting drunk off of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says to them, He says, what are you doing coming and getting drunk at the Lord's table? Can't you stay at home and drink, he says? Now, he doesn't say, you shouldn't be drinking alcoholic beverages anyway. What he does say is, that is not the place for that, and drunkenness is always wrong. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and the qualifications for a spiritual leader. In each case, it says that he is not to be one who is addicted to wine. Addicted to wine. He doesn't say, don't drink wine. Never drank wine. Won't ever drink wine. Doesn't say that. Couldn't he have just said that? So, here we are now at a bit of a quandary, aren't we? If you've been listening, there is a quandary here. Because on the one side you have all of these strong, incredibly strong warnings as to alcohol and its effect and it's a mocker and if if you're led astray by it, you're a fool. And then on the other side, you have these passages, which would seem to indicate that it's not necessarily wrong. So how do we reconcile these two? I have a solution for you. And it's this. That not everything that is less than wise in most circumstances is a sin. Let me say that again. you got to chew on this a little bit. Not everything that is less than wise in most circumstances is a sin. Drunkenness is rightly put into a moral category. It is wrong. It is always wrong. No questions asked. But we always have to be careful not to place wisdom issues into moral categories. We have to allow God to define what the moral categories are through his revealed word. And then to apply wisdom and the principles of God's word in our daily lives. So not everything that is less than wise in most circumstances is a sin. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you have noticed maybe that I've got these bows up here. And I want to tell you a a, a little story. This is a famous story in the DeWitt household, uh, one of those uh, famous Christmas stories. And uh, when my brother Scott, well, I should say this. My brother Scott, our newest missionary to Paraguay, was a very, very naughty boy, okay? (laughs) Which just means that God's grace can reach anyone. But he really was. I mean, it, it, after church, or if somebody was going to get in trouble, it was always Scott. If there was some thing going, screaming going on after church, Scott was always somehow involved. He was mischievous. He was always in trouble, uh, and that was just the way that he was. So, when my brother was in second or third grade, he desperately wanted a bow and arrow for Christmas. I mean, he wanted it so bad. He just he was consumed with getting this bow and arrow. And uh, so Christmas came, and in my, in my family's house, there was always a lot of presents, and the best presents were always hidden, like, in the back, and they weren't to be touched. Okay? They weren't to be touched. And in the back of the Christmas tree was a long, slender present uh, to Scott. And for, you know, several days, if not weeks, he had seen it, and it was just, oh, he just, oh, he just couldn't, could not hardly contain himself. And so we got through all the sort of the normal presents, and then we get to the big present and they pull out the long, slender present and they give it to my brother, Scott. And he just grabs it and he rips off the wrapping and he begins to shout, I knew it, I knew it, a bow and arrow! And he looks down and he goes, oh, a fishing pole. (laughs) We love that story. Do you think there was any way that my parents were gonna buy Scott a bow and arrow? He would have killed most of the pets in the neighborhood and a couple family members (laughs) with a bow and arrow. It just was not going to happen. We would say it would be very unwise to buy Scott a bow and arrow. Would we call it a sin? Would we call it a sin for everyone at all times? to have a bow. And this is the kind of bow that you know he was looking for, kind of a basic children's bow and arrow. No. Now let me ask you another question. Would it have been a sin to get Scott one like this? <laughs> Compound bow, camouflaged. This has destruction written all over it, doesn't it? we would say it would have been extremely, extremely, extremely unwise for them to have bought this for my brother Scott. But would we place it in a moral category and say that it would have been sin? I don't think so. And as we come to this issue, we're talking about an issue in biblical times, much like this. Okay? This is, Uh, Alcohol in biblical times, it was alcoholic. It was not as alcoholic as uh, many of the drinks that we have today. It was not as available as it is today. It didn't have the risks associated that today we have. But it still was alcoholic. Lesser so. But you know what? This is not the world that we live in today with alcohol. This is the world that we live in today with alcohol. You ever go to a restaurant where they don't serve it? Ever been to a grocery store that doesn't provide it? Have you, uh, uh, you know, sporting events? you ever watched a football game where there wasn't some desire and appeal to get you to drink? It has never been as powerful. It has never been as accessible. It has never been so linked to temptation as it is today. This is the alcoholic world that we live in today. So I say, if the warnings of Scripture are so strong, and they're talking about it on this level. And we live in a day of this. How much more true are the warnings that wine is a mocker in the culture that we live in today? Now, at the same time, though, at the same time, we cannot and we must not call it a moral sin. Is it unwise? I think, in the vast majority of circumstances that we live in, the answer is yes. For a number of reasons, I want to just quickly give you five that I'll go through tonight. The temptation of drunkenness is greater than it's ever been. The associations of alcohol are morally perilous. Teenagers, come tonight. I'll talk more about that. The hazards that impairment in that alcohol uh, bring in judgment. The overabundance of weaker conscience uh, Christians in this area, and the connection that even the world makes to alcohol consumption and an immoral lifestyle. So that I believe that these things to be true, and each of them to argue for abstinence from alcoholic drink, but I cannot, and we cannot, as a church, put it in a moral category. Because the Bible is our standard, and the Bible doesn't put it in a moral category, but not everything that is less than wise in most circumstances is sin. So you're going to have to come to your own uh, conclusion before the Lord on this. This is something that each of us stand before the Lord and we have to give an account and we have to come to our own conclusions on it and we may not all come to the same conclusions. And that may be okay. How do we get along in spite of the differences of opinion? That's our subject tonight. Now I have a final comment. And this one's a devotional one. This message has been sort of a teaching message more than devotional. But I do have a final devotional comment here, and then I'm done. You ever ask yourself, why do people drink? I mean, really, why do they drink? And I'm not talking about the 0.01% of people that maybe drink to enjoy the taste so they can give glory to God kind of drinking. That's pretty much not why people drink. Why do people drink? isn't it because they're looking for something? Aren't they looking for some change in their reality that that drink will provide? One man said it very well. He said, Intoxication is the devil's poor substitute for the joy of spirit-filled living. I like that. It is a cheap substitute from the devil. It is less than the best. That's why the verse goes on. It says, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That there is something that is better. There is something that is more desirable. So that we may have the freedom in Christ to drink wine as Christians. But we don't need it. We don't need wine. We don't need to change our reality. We have something that is better in Christ. So Bethel, don't settle for anything less than the best that life has to offer through a relationship with the Father through his Son, and the joy that the Holy Spirit provides. Live on that level. Don't mess around with this other stuff. Live on that level. And enjoy it, and give God the glory for it. Well, tonight, there's more. Tomorrow, or next Sunday, there's more as well. All three are important.